This message comes from NPR sponsor Stripe. Tap to pay on iPhone, and Stripe can help you grow your business's revenue and reach through accepting more in-person, contactless payments right from an iPhone. To learn how, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hey, it's Guy here. So have you ever heard about a person or maybe even met someone who risked everything to do the right thing? Somebody who was so courageous, it almost made you wonder where that courage even comes from. Well, we're going to explore that very question on the show today. It originally aired in December of 2014. But before we start the show, just one quick favor. So for the past few weeks, I've been asking you to consider making a donation to your local public radio station all this month. And the idea behind it isn't just to, you know, ask for money, but it's to ask for your support because public radio stations depend on your contributions to function. It's how they can bring you the news programs you love and the cultural programs you love. And even this show, it's how they can broadcast our show on the radio. So if you can, please consider donating. Go to donate.npr.org slash tedradio to show your support for our show. And thanks. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that... Delivered it, at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Guy Raz. And on the show today, stories of courage and justice. Ideas about why people sometimes risk everything to do the right thing. So in the late 1980s, Gayla Benefield had a job reading utility meters. She was one of those people who'd go house to house for the gas or the electric company. Now, this was in a small town in Montana. And Gayla did most of her work in the middle of the day. And after a couple of months on the job, she started to notice this weird thing that that a lot of people were actually home in the middle of the day. And a lot of them had oxygen tanks. She saw all these people at home on oxygen tanks and thought, that doesn't make sense. What could it be? This is Margaret Heffernan. In a past life, she ran a bunch of tech companies. Now she's a writer. And she's written about Gala and what was happening to the people in that town in Montana. These were people who were not old enough normally to be on oxygen tanks. That's right. I mean, they were kind of late 40s, early 50s. And she thought they shouldn't be retired. They shouldn't be on oxygen tanks. And then her father died and her mother died. And as she said to me, you know, her mother came from stock that, you know, was still doing ballroom dancing in their 90s. So none of this made sense. The town in Montana where Gayla Benefield lived was called Libby. Margaret Heffernan told her story on the TED stage. And as Margaret tells it, Gayla became convinced that something was wrong there and that she needed to figure it out so she could warn people. She puzzled and puzzled over every piece of her town. The town had a vermiculite mine in it. Vermiculite was used for soil conditioner to to make plants grow faster and better. 
Vermiculite was used to insulate lofts, huge amounts of it put under the roof to keep houses warm during the long Montana winters. Vermiculite was in the playground, it was in the football ground, it was in the skating rink. What she didn't learn until she started working this problem is vermiculite's a very toxic form of asbestos. When she figured out the puzzle, she started telling everyone she could what had happened, what had been done to her parents and to the people that she saw on oxygen tanks at home in the afternoons. But actually, nobody wanted to know. In fact, she became so annoying as she kept insisting on telling this story to her neighbors, to her friends, to other people in the community, that eventually a bunch of them got together and they made a bumper sticker which said, yes, I'm from Libby, Montana, and no, I don't have asbestosis. But Gayla didn't stop. She kept doing research. The advent of the internet definitely helped her. She talked to anybody she could. She argued and argued, and finally she struck lucky when a researcher came through town studying the history of mines in the area, and she told him her story. And at first, of course, like everyone, he didn't believe her, but he went back to Seattle and he did his own research, and she re he realized that she was right. The company that owned the mine offered Gayla a bunch of money to keep quiet, but she refused. She kept thinking about her own two granddaughters, who had watched Gayla's mom die of asbestosis. They were there when she died. They watched her slowly suffocate for a year and a half until she couldn't breathe anymore. This is Gayla. She spoke to NPR back in 2002. A year later, their grandparents on their father's side were both diagnosed. And here was these little girls, they were 8 and 10 years old, and they were completely panic-stricken. And they would come to me and they'd say, are we going to die of this too? Well, this really set up a question in my mind. Could I honestly say, no, you're not going to? Nevertheless, people still didn't want to know. They said things like, well, if it were really dangerous, someone would have told us. If that's really why everyone was dying, the doctors would have told us. But still, Gayla went on, and finally she succeeded in getting a federal agency to come to town and to screen the inhabitants of the town, 15,000 people. And what they discovered was that the town had a mortality rate 80 times higher than anywhere in the United States. A government cleanup was ordered. The company that owned the mine eventually went bankrupt. An asbestosis clinic was opened, and to this day, new patients are being treated there. And what she did by speaking out took so much courage. Mm. But do you think that it was extraordinary, or, or do you think that it's something anyone would have done? Well, that's a great question, because Gayla doesn't think she's extraordinary. And I've had the privilege of knowing and interviewing a number of people who do this. And I think what makes their courage even more impressive is that they somehow have a capacity to see what the world or life or a particular circumstance looks like to the powerless. And that's really what drives them. 
the question is, where does that courage come from? And what does it actually mean to be courageous? We'll explore these ideas throughout the show today with TED speakers who have all had to face difficult choices about whether to shine a light on injustice or whether to keep silent. There's one pretty common hurdle to speaking out, and it's the same one that Gayla Benefield came up against in Montana. Willful blindness. Here's Margaret Heffernan again on the TED stage. There's a lot of willful blindness around these days. You can see willful blindness in banks when thousands of people sold mortgages to people who couldn't afford them. You could see willful blindness in the run-up to the Iraq war. Willful blindness exists on epic scales like those, and it also exists on very small scales. Companies that have been studied for willful blindness can be asked questions like, are there issues at work that people are afraid to raise? And when academics have done studies like this of corporations in the United States, what they find is 85% of people say yes. 85% of people know there's a problem, but they won't say anything. And when I duplicated the research in Europe, asking all the same questions, I found exactly the same number. And what's really interesting is that when I go to companies in Switzerland, they tell me, this is a uniquely Swiss problem. And when I go to Germany, they say, oh, yes, this is the German disease. And when I go to companies in England, they say, oh, yeah, the British are really bad at this. And the truth is, this is a human problem. We're all, under certain circumstances, willfully blind. So when you come across the people who aren't in that 85%, the the 15% Mm. who have the courage to speak up, are they different than the rest of us or, or are they the same? Well, they're very ordinary. And this is what I love about them. Um, You know, a couple weeks ago, I met a nurse who felt that there was some very bad care in the hospital where she worked. And she just spoke up and spoke up and wouldn't stop. And she's now creating a culture where that's getting easier and easier for everyone, which is, of course, what makes this a safe hospital. So creating the conditions in which people can speak freely, is central to building businesses that are sustainably creative and safe. Starts at the top, though. Actually, I think it starts everywhere. Hmm. I've been thinking about this a lot because when I say, well, why don't people speak up? What I get is, oh, it's the culture. And I think, well, what is the culture? The culture is the accumulation of everybody's actions. And in many of the organizations I work with, change starts in very unexpected places because people just decide, I want to do this or I want to try this. And then they discover they don't get shot. And then they discover that actually now they've got a really exciting project. Mm. You know, I think the most dangerous thing in organizations is silence. It's all those brains whizzing around full of observations and insight and ideas that are not being articulated. Freedom doesn't exist if you don't use it. And what people like Gayla Benefield do is they use the freedom that they have. 
And what they're very prepared to do is recognize that yes, this is going to be an argument. And yes, I'm going to have a lot of rows with my neighbors and my colleagues and my friends. But I'm going to become very good at this conflict. I'm going to take on the naysayers because they'll make my argument better and stronger. I can collaborate with my opponents to become better at what I do. When I went to Libby, Montana, I visited the asbestosis clinic that Gayla Benefield brought into being. I took my 12-year-old daughter with me because I really wanted her to meet Gayla. And she said, why? What's the big deal? I said, she's not a movie star, and she's not a celebrity, and she's not an expert. The really important thing about Gayla is she's like you, and she's like me. She had freedom, and she was ready to use it. Thank you very much. You know, Margaret, what I love about what you do and, and what you say is that I think a big part of it is also aspirational. I think that you mm-hmm. want you want people to think this way because it's good for everybody. But yeah. you understand that the, the, the reality is very few people do these kinds of things. Very few people choose to speak up. Well, and also I think, you know, I, I think you're right. And I think what's really important to remember you know, if any of us find ourselves in these situations, is that both choices are dreadful. The choice to say something is risky, and the choice of saying nothing is risky. And so I think courage is having the clarity to see the two bad choices. There is no safe path. But what you do know is if you don't speak up, everything will stay the same. Margaret Heffernan, she has two great talks. You can see both of them at TED.com. More ideas about courage in a moment. I'm Guy Raz, and this is the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology, hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why people do the things they do. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com podcast or wherever you listen. This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, stories of courage and justice, ideas about why people sometimes risk everything to do the right thing. Back in 2000, reporter Janine DiGiovanni rode a helicopter right into the middle of Sierra Leone's civil war. I begged, bribed, 
paid lots of money to get on a helicopter from Conakry, Guinea, going into Freetown, which was empty. Rebels were walking around the city, killing people at random. And Janine was determined to get in. But yet when we landed, crowds of people were desperate to get out. And the captain said, don't you think there's something wrong with you? You're desperate to be flown into a place where everyone is desperate to get out of. Did you feel courageous? I don't think of myself as a courageous person. I think of myself as a pretty unique person. I just think my mind works in a different way than most people's do. And I think whereas when most people would see danger, they'd probably run the other way, whereas my reaction would be, what's going on? I should move closer. I need to know. And it doesn't matter where it is. That need to know is like the fuel that gives Janine the courage to go there, to be there. She's been shot at and detained, threatened, watched, followed, everywhere from Rwanda, Kosovo, Somalia, Zimbabwe, East Timor, Liberia, Egypt, Syria, Libya, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan. Iraq, Afghanistan, of course, um, Pakistan. Janine's probably covered uh, every major war or conflict for the past 25 years. So obviously an incredibly courageous person, right? But the thing is, she'd say that all of that pales in comparison to the kind of courage she's seen in others. And it usually comes down to ordinary people when confronted with great evil, taking and making choices that would, for me, give the real explanation of courage. I mean, to me, I I always thought the most courageous people I knew were people that faced insurmountable challenges in their lives. And that could be someone with cancer who battles it out and gets through the day, or, or children who walk to school in Africa because they really want to be educated, or someone who survives a genocide by hiding or hiding other people. It's the kind of courage she saw in the people who lived through the siege of Sarajevo during the Bosnian War in the early 1990s. Janine talked about it on the TED stage. I had the honor of being one of those reporters that lived through that siege. And I say I have the honor and the privilege of being there because it's taught me everything, not just about being a reporter, but about being a human being. Even in the midst of terrible destruction and death and chaos, I learned how ordinary people could help their neighbors share food, raise their children, drag someone who's being sniped at from the middle of the road, even though you yourself were endangering your life, helping people get into taxis who were injured to try to take them to hospitals. I'm going to steal a story from a friend of mine, a Bosnian friend, about what happened to her. She was walking to work one day in April 1992 in a miniskirt and high heels. She worked in a bank. She was a young mother. She was someone who liked to party, great person. And suddenly she sees a tank ambling down the main road of Sarajevo, knocking everything out of its path. She thinks she's dreaming, but she's not. And she runs as any of us would have done and takes cover and she hides behind a trash bin in her high heels and her miniskirt. And as she's hiding there, she's feeling 
ridiculous, but she's seeing this tank go by with soldiers and people all over the place in chaos, and she thinks, I feel like Alice in Wonderland going down the rabbit hole, down, down, down into chaos, and my life will never be the same again. A few weeks later, my friend was in a crowd of people pushing with her infant son in her arms to give him to a stranger on a bus, which was one of the last buses leaving Sarajevo, to take children out so they could be safe. And she remembers struggling with her mother to the front, crowds and crowds of people, take my child, take my child, and passing her son to someone through a window. And the fact that she sent him off, which was a great act of courage, enabled him to survive. If she had kept him with her, who knows what could have happened. He could have been maimed, he could have been killed, and instead she gave him the chance to live. Hmm. I mean, one of the things, many years ago someone said to me, what is, what is the most remarkable thing to you about war? And I said that there is this incredible dichotomy that on one hand there's the evil that you literally can feel. But at the same time, it brings out this kind of extraordinary power in some people, in ordinary people, who just take it upon themselves to do the right thing. Do you think that courage is is like an unconscious response to circumstances, especially circumstances in a war zone? Or, or, or do you think that it's a deliberate, conscious process? I don't think it's a conscious process. We are programmed to survive and to protect ourselves and to put on your own air mask first before you, you help other people. But I think that when it comes down to it, most people I'd like to believe are good people and wouldn't walk away. You know, I remember during the war in Sierra Leone just meeting this woman just a neighborhood woman who sheltered all the local kids. She wasn't doing it for money and she wasn't doing it for any reason other than she could. There are so many people that just every day toil, and it really is toil, you know, without recognition, without funding, because they believe in what they're doing. I now cover Syria, and I started reporting it because I believe that it needs to be done. I believe a story there has to be told. I see again a template of the war in Bosnia. And when I first arrived in Damascus, I saw this strange moment where people didn't seem to believe that war was going to descend. And it was exactly the same in Bosnia and nearly every other country I've seen where war comes. People don't want to believe it's coming. So they don't leave. They don't leave before they can. They don't get their money out. They stay because you want to stay in your home. And then war and chaos descends. When I used to cover um, wars, especially Iraq, I remember having this like pit in my stomach the night before I would go. You know, and that, that fear somehow seemed to cancel out any thoughts of, of feeling courageous. I, I mean, I think... Fear is natural, and I think that there is a reason why you should be afraid in places like Baghdad and Kabul. They are highly dangerous places. You're not meant to be there. Um, when the war in Syria started, a lot of young journalists came who really didn't have much experience. Um, 
And a lot of them had this recklessness, which came from, I think, watching too many YouTube videos and films about war reporters and reading too many daring do articles that were written in men's magazines about the glamour of being a war reporter. And um, it really scared me because I just, I've always thought when I've run into these kind of people in the field, I, I go the other way because I don't think they get killed. I think they get other people killed. I think to be a good reporter working in conflict, maintaining a level of fear is hugely important because that is your barometer. I think that courage is, is about knowing the limits and protecting yourself and other people around you. Fear is part of being courageous. It, it has to be. In 2004, I had a little baby boy, and I call him my miracle child because after seeing so much death and destruction and chaos and darkness in my life, this ray of hope was born, and I called him Luca, which means the bringer of light, because he did bring, he does bring life, light to my life. But I'm talking about him because when he was four months old, my foreign editor forced me to go back to Baghdad, where I had been reporting all throughout the Saddam regime and during the fall of Baghdad and afterwards. And I remember getting on the plane in tears, crying to be separated from my son. And while I was there, a quite famous Iraqi politician who was a friend of mine said to me, what are you doing here? Why aren't you home with Luca? And I said, well, I, I have to see. It was 2004, which was the beginning of the incredibly bloody time in Iraq. I have to see. I have to see what is happening here. I have to report it. And he said, go home. Because if you miss his first tooth, if you miss his first step, you'll never forgive yourself. But there will always be another war. And there sadly will always be wars. And I am deluding myself if I think as a journalist, as a reporter, as a writer, what I do can stop them. I can't. All I am is a witness. My role is to bring a voice to people who are voiceless. A colleague of mine described it as to shine a light in the darkest corners of the world. And that's what I try to do. Thank you very much. Janine DiGiovanni is now the Middle East editor for Newsweek. You can see her full talk on war and courage at ted.npr.org. Can you introduce yourself, please? I'm Kimberly Motley. I'm an international litigator, and I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And so we've been asking, obviously, everybody this question. What do you think of when, when you hear the word courage? What courage means to me is someone who recognizes that they're afraid of things and tries to attack those things head on. Are you courageous? Do you think of yourself as a courageous person? No, I don't. I think my clients are courageous. And her clients are mostly Afghan women and girls. Kimberly's law office is in Kabul. And when our clients challenge the social order, 
It's like a death wish. And not just for them, but for Kimberly as well. Do you ever get scared? Yeah, I get scared. But I don't operate well under fear. I operate very well under anger. And so I think a lot of times I translate fear into anger. Kimberly Motley is the first foreigner to argue cases in Afghan courts, and she wins most of those cases. She travels without a bodyguard or a driver or any weapons because she says it would interfere with her work. Here's her story from the TED stage. In 2008, I went to Afghanistan on this nine-month program to train Afghan lawyers. In that nine months, I went around the country and I talked to hundreds of people that were locked up, and I talked to many businesses that were also operating in Afghanistan. And within these conversations, I started hearing the connections between the businesses and the people and how laws that were meant to protect them were being underused while gross and illegal punitive measures were overused. And so this put me on a quest for justice. So as a result, I decided to open up a practice and I became the first foreigner to litigate in Afghan courts. Let me tell you a story about a little girl named Nagma. Nagma lived in a refugee camp with her parents and her eight brothers and sisters. Every morning, her father would wake up in the host he picked for construction work, and on a good month, he would earn $50. The winter was very harsh, and unfortunately, Nagma's brother died, and her mother became very ill. In desperation, her father went to a neighbor to borrow $2,500. After several months of waiting, the neighbor became very impatient, and he demanded that he be paid back. Unfortunately, Nagma's father didn't have the money, and so the two men agreed to a jirga. So simply put, a jirga is a form of mediation that's used in Afghanistan's informal justice system. It's usually presided over by religious leaders and village elders. And jurors are often used in rural countries like Afghanistan, where there's deep-seated resentment against the formal system. At the jirga, the men sat together, and they decided that the best way to satisfy the debt would be if Nagma married the neighbor's 21-year-old son. She was six. Now, stories like Nagma, unfortunately, are all too common. And while... Jirgas are built on long-standing tribal customs. Even in jirgas, laws are supposed to be followed. And it goes without saying that giving a child to satisfy a debt is not only grossly immoral, it's illegal. There's a, a, a photograph that you show in your talk, which is um, you sitting cross-legged in a circle. There are about a dozen Afghan men. And there you are, an American woman non-Muslim, foreigner, no headscarf. How are you able to convince this group of Afghan elders to have not just meet about this and resolve it, but have you preside over that meeting? First of all, to get them to come together, the, the Holy Quran teaches that women are to be respected. And the Holy Quran teaches that a woman is supposed to choose who she wants to marry and that women are I mean, supposed to You show to... them? You show them the passages in the Quran like you carry a Quran with you or you like have a translator explain to them that this is in the Quran? My translator translates what I say and I cite chapter and verse of where it's in the Holy Quran. And so 
you know, I didn't come at them and said, hey, the Holy Crown says this and let's sit together. And by the way, I want to be in charge. That was a process. It was like me asking to preside over it was sort of one of the last things I asked to do right before we had the meeting. And by that time, I had created a rapport and a relationship with them where they had a certain level of trust with me, which is why they allowed for me to preside over it. Now, let's get back to Nagma. Several people heard about this story, and so they contacted me because they wanted to pay the $2,500 debt. And it's not just that simple. You can't just throw money at this problem and think that it's going to disappear. That's not how it works in Afghanistan. So I told them I'd get involved, but in order to get involved, what needed to happen is a second jirga needed to be called, a jirga of appeals. And at the end of this jirga, it was ordered by the judge that the first decision was erased and that the $2,500 debt was satisfied. And we all signed a written order where all the men acknowledged that what they did was illegal, and if they did it again, that they would go to prison. And most importantly, the engagement was terminated and Nagma was free. Now, with my job, there's above average amount of risks that are involved. I've been temporarily detained, I've been accused of running a brothel, accused of being a spy. I've had a grenade thrown at my office. It didn't go off, though. But I find that with my job, that the rewards far outweigh the risks. And as many risks as I take, my clients take far greater risks because they have a lot more to lose if their cases go unheard, or worse, if they're penalized for having me as their lawyer. With every case that I take, I realize that as much as I'm standing behind my clients, that they're also standing behind me. And that's what keeps me going. And it's how Kimberly Motley saved the life of a 12-year-old girl named Sahar. That story coming up in just a moment. Our show today, Ideas About Courage. I'm Guy Raz. Stay with us. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Your employees are more than your coworkers. They're the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers modern group benefits designed to protect employees and their families with dental, vision, life, and disability coverage. Humana knows every employee and every business is unique. That's why they listen to your needs and build plans with you and your team in mind. That's the power of human care. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. On the show today, stories of courage and justice, ideas about why some people risk everything to do the right thing. So before the break, we were hearing from Kimberly Motley. She's an American lawyer in Kabul who mostly represents women and girls. So let me let me get this straight. You get Afghan clients, mm-hmm. go to villages and confront 
the abusers or the transgressors, you argue cases in front of Afghan courts without the language and without any sort of specialized legal training in Afghanistan, right? Right. So have you heard of the word chutzpah? <laughs> yes. You have a lot of that. Thank I you. mean, courage, and it's the same thing, right? I mean, you, mm-hmm. I mean, it takes a certain kind of person to say, yeah, I'm going to do this. And, and, and I'm going to do this because it's the right thing to do. Like, how does that happen? Where does that come from? You know, when you grow up poor in America, I think often you feel very invisible. Hmm. And I think you feel like you don't have a voice, just like many Afghans feel. I grew up in Milwaukee. I grew up in the projects. My mother is Korean. My father is black. My father was fired from his job based on the fact that he had a disability, which we all know is very, very illegal. And so just seeing him fighting this big corporation for, you know, like a decade and ended up losing, seeing how that really crushed him and seeing how invisible he felt, you know, it really affected me and it made me want to be a person that always listened to what people had to say. And so I think that's why I'm able to go to the villages or talk to the within the tribal courts. If something is wrong, I'm happy to say that is wrong. I have to assume that throughout your journey, people constantly discouraged you or tried to block you or made it really difficult for you to do what you do. How did you keep going? You know, I do have a lot of days where I'm just like, why do I do this? You know, because I get haters from all sides. You know, it's not just Afghans. It's also foreigners or embassies sometimes. And probably people that are like, you know, philosophically allied with you may say, oh, you know, you don't understand the system here. You and your American ways thinking that you can just change the country. People must have said that to you. Oh, yeah, they always say that. And I think they're idiots um, because that's not what I do. You know what I mean? I'm not there to be the UN or to be the, the embassy. I'm there to be a lawyer for my clients. And I use their laws. I don't come in and say, well, in America, we do this. Because you know what? If I did that, then I would fail. There are currently over 280 million boys and girls who are married under the age of 15. Child marriages prolong the vicious cycle of poverty, poor health, lack of education. At the age of 12, Sahar was married. She was forced into this marriage and sold by her brother. When she went to her in-law's house, they forced her into prostitution. Because she refused, she was tortured. At one point, she managed to escape to a neighbor's house. And when she went there, instead of protecting her, they dragged her back to her husband's house, and she was tortured even worse. You know, as a lawyer, I try to be very strong for all my clients. But seeing her, how broken and very weak as she was, was very difficult. It took weeks for us to really get to what happened to her when she was in that house. But finally, she started opening up to me. And when she opened up, what I heard was she didn't know what her rights were, but she did know that she had a certain level of protection by her government that failed her. And so we decided to take this case to the Supreme Court 
Now, this is extremely significant because this is the first time that a victim of domestic violence in Afghanistan was being represented by a lawyer. So there we were at the Supreme Court, arguing in front of 12 Afghan justices. Me as an American female lawyer, and Sahar, a young woman who, when I met her, couldn't speak above a whisper. She stood up, she found her voice, and my girl told them that she wanted justice, and she got it. At the end of it all, the court unanimously agreed that her in-laws should be arrested for what they did to her. Her brother should also be arrested for selling her. And they agreed that she did have a right to civil compensation. What Sahara has shown us is that we can attack existing bad practices by using the laws in the ways that they're intended to be used. And by protecting Sahar, we are protecting ourselves. Thank you. Kimberly Motley is an American lawyer who works in Afghanistan. You can hear the whole incredible story at TED.com. Okay, um, so so this episode is about courage. We've heard from uh, a war correspondent, and we just heard from Kimberly Motley, who uh, represents women in Afghanistan. And now it's uh, now it's your turn. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that this is the right show for me. I mean, I love your I love your show. I'm very honored and thrilled to be here, guy. I just don't think that this is the right episode. <laughs> should we should we like find a different one for you to be in? Maybe we should go. Back. So this is Lena Wen, and she definitely belongs in this episode. Lena's an emergency physician by training, and a pretty polarizing figure in medicine, which we'll explain why in a moment. So you don't think you're courageous? I think I'm determined. I think that I am not afraid to speak up when it's about defending my patients and defending my community and defending people who I really care about. And what makes her so unpopular in the medical establishment is that Lena thinks you have a right to know more about your doctor, where their money comes from. And the story of how she came to that view began with her mother. Here's Lena Wen on the TED stage. When I was eight, my parents and I moved to the U.S., and ours became the typical immigrant narrative. My parents cleaned hotel rooms and washed dishes and pumped gas so that I could pursue my dream. Well, eventually, I learned enough English, and my parents were so happy the day that I got into medical school and took my oath of healing and service. But then one day, everything changed. My mother called me to tell me that she wasn't feeling well, that she had this cough that wouldn't go away, that she was short of breath and tired. Well, I knew that my mother was someone who never complained about anything. For her to tell me that something was the matter, I knew something had to be really wrong, and it was. We found out that she had stage four breast cancer, cancer that by then had spread to her lungs, her bones, and her brain. My mother was brave, though, and she had hope. She went through surgery and radiation, and was on her third round of chemotherapy, where she lost her address book. She tried to look up her oncologist's phone number on the internet, and she found it. But she found something else too. On several websites, he was listed as a highly paid speaker to a drug company, and in fact, often spoke on behalf of the same chemo regimen that he had prescribed her. She called me in a panic, and I didn't know what to believe. 
Maybe this was the right chemo regimen for her, but maybe it wasn't. So what did you do? I mean, did you did you feel like he was compromised? It's hard to know. We never asked him about it, probably because there was just too much fear. I mean, how do you ask your doctor whether he or she is getting influenced by the money that he or she is getting? Right, that's a very difficult question to ask. So we never found out. Well, I'll tell you that that seed of fear blossomed, and my mother no longer trusted his recommendations. Even when he prescribed antibiotics for pneumonia, she would wonder. Is it because it's the right medication for me, or is he getting paid by the drug company? And that made me look into the literature too. And at the time, in 2008, a New England Journal of Medicine paper found that 94% of doctors have some affiliation with drug companies or medical device companies. Wow. And there were dozens of studies to show that those affiliations do, in fact, influence prescription behavior. And that really shocked me and made me want to do something about it. And at that point, the thing she wanted to do was to find out whether this kind of stuff bothered other people too. So she gathered a team of researchers, and they started to survey patients about their healthcare. One after another, our respondents told us that that doctor-patient relationship is a deeply intimate one. That to show their doctors their bodies and tell them their deepest secrets, they want to first understand their doctors' values. People want to know about their doctors first. So that they can make the informed choice. As a result of this, I formed a campaign, "Who's My Doctor," that calls for total transparency in medicine. Participating doctors voluntarily disclose on a public website not just information about where we went to medical school and what specialty we're in, but also our conflicts of interests. We go beyond the Government Sunshine Act about drug company affiliations, and we talk about how we're paid. Then we go one step further. We add our values when it comes to women's health, LGBT health, alternative medicine, preventive health, and end-of-life decisions. We pledge to our patients that we are here to serve you, so you have a right to know who we are. We believe that transparency can be the cure for fear. Well, I thought some doctors would sign on and others wouldn't, but I had no idea of the huge backlash that would ensue. I mean, the, the the feedback, the response was pretty overwhelming. Like you were public enemy number one, like overnight. I didn't expect for so many people even to read about it. I wrote about it for an online blog for doctors, just describing what we're doing, encouraging people to write to me if they're interested. And I got so many negative responses. We're talking thousands of negative responses of people saying, "How dare you attack me personally?" Don't you understand how difficult life is? And I should not be a doctor. I'm betraying my profession. I should, in fact, have my medical license be taken away from me. They even went as far as calling my boss and asking for me to be fired. Why? Why, why did? Why do you think doctors reacted the way they did? This, in particular, is the hardest thing for them because it touches the very core of who we are as doctors. We pride ourselves in not letting anything influence our behavior, and yet we've seen the studies. Everyone is seeing the studies that actually these financial incentives do impact you. So people know this, and when I bring it out into the open, people feel threatened because it's the core of their identity and also often their incomes. And the more people started talking about it, the more angry 
many doctors became. I remember people started posting on these doctors' forums, and these many of these doctors' forums, you have to register in your own name with your national provider ID. And there was one particular incident that was particularly shocking. My Twitter account had gone down, and then I looked on this doctors' forum, and someone took credit there for quote unquote Twitter bombing my account. And then various people wrote in and said, "Too bad it wasn't a real bomb." Does anyone know where she lives? Does anyone know where she works? Were you scared? I was. I remember calling my husband and talking to my friends and saying, "Maybe I should just quit this. I mean, this is not worth my life, and I didn't want my husband or my loved ones to be injured." But then I started hearing from patient advocacy groups, but also just regular people, who were overwhelmingly in favor of this. They said, "This is common sense." Of course, we want to know about any conflicts that our doctors may have. We want them to disclose this to us. There's also this sense from patients that it's not okay that our doctors get to decide what information we should know about. The information should be out there, and we should decide whether it's important for us. I mean, you call yourself determined.、Um, some people would say courageous. What's what's the source of it? Where does it come from? It's probably my mother, who was the reason why I got through difficult childhood and upbringing. And every time I think back to what it was like when she was ill, and what she went through, and that initial moment when she found out about her oncologist, and this is what I want to prevent in the future. I don't want other patients to go through this realization and doubt and fear. And that I think is the source of my inspiration. My mother fought her cancer for eight years. She was a planner, and she thought a lot about how she wanted to live and how she wanted to die. Not only did she sign advance directives, she wrote a 12-page document about how she had suffered enough, how it was time for her to go. One day, when I was a resident physician, I got a call to say that she was in the intensive care unit. By the time I got there, she was about to be intubated and put on a breathing machine. But this is not what she wants," I said, "and we have documents." The ICU doctor looked at me in the eye, pointed at my then 16-year-old sister, and said, "Do you remember when you were that age? How would you have liked to grow up without your mother?" Her oncologist was there too and said, "This is your mother. Can you really face yourself for the rest of your life if you don't do everything for her?" I knew my mother so well. I understood what her directives meant so well, and I was a physician. That was the single hardest decision I ever made—to let her die in peace. And I carry those words of those doctors with me every single day. Did you have doubts at the time? I still have doubts now, and I wonder. I think I will always wonder what would have happened. If we did try something else, would it have made my mother live a couple days longer, a couple weeks longer? Could she have lived a couple months longer, even? But I still go back to what she says, which is that she had suffered enough. I mean, it seems like she lived a, a life of, of courage. You know, my mother suffered a lot, but never talked about her suffering. She was、um, an academic. 
She had um, a significant role in student activism in China. Um, she came to the U.S. by herself so that she could provide for a better life for us and to get my family away from persecution in China. Eventually, we ended up staying on political asylum. And she lived her entire life fighting and struggling against whatever forces may be. Um, She ended up being a teacher. She worked in some of the toughest school districts in Los Angeles, not because she had to, but it was something that she believed she really needed to. And that's, to me, is courage of saying, I know what needs to be done. I'm going to serve my community and I'm going to fight against any forces that come my way because these are the right things to do. That's Lena Wen, emergency physician and founder of Who'sMyDoctor.com. She's now the president of Planned Parenthood. You can see her full talk at ted.npr.org. Thanks for listening to our show on Courage this week. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Sanaz Meshkinpour, and Bridget McCarthy. Our intern is Amanda Hunnickfort with help from Daniel Shukin, Portia Robertson-Migas, and Eric Newsom. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, VCU Massey Comprehensive Cancer Center, who, as an NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center in the country's top 4%, is unconditionally committed to keeping loved ones in their lives. MasseyCancerCenter.org slash comprehensive. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.